Welcome to Conscious Curiosity SD, where successful San Diego leaders share their stories of leading beyond profit and are using the influence of business to positively change the companies and communities we all work and live in. I'm your host, Jeff Blanton from Jailbreak Leadership, a unique set of processes that unlock the unlimited passion and potential of your team to create a 10x result in your business. I want to thank our collaborative community of San Diego business organizations, the Better Business Bureau, Conscious Capitalism, Be Local, and Cause San Diego. We're all focused on impacting the community of San Diego through the work they do as business leaders. Welcome to the show. Last week, I was in a group planning meeting with a nonprofit business organization. There were five local university students in the meeting, and I was so pleased to see them confidently speak up, share their ideas, and provide excellent new and fresh ways of looking at things. This only served to confirm my personal thoughts that we, the boomers, and in some cases, the silent generation, need to move aside and let these next generations take over sooner rather than later. To reinforce the next generation idea, today we have an awe-inspiring success story. The story of a local graduate from the University of San Diego who co-founded an amazing company five years ago as having both success and impact. Samantha Panthazopoulos, welcome to Conscious Curiosity SD Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Sam is the co-founder with Dylan Barber of Visor, an amazing business that's focused on what they call democratizing wellness. Today, we're going to explore that journey, the motivation behind starting the company, the challenges, and what's exciting about the futures as seen through the eyes of a young, successful entrepreneur. Sam, what exactly were your parents whispering to you in your sleep as a young child that's given you the boldness to take on such an amazing challenge and create the success that you're having today? What's the backstory? Oh, I love that question. It's such a good way to, to open up the conversation because both of my parents were incredibly supportive of anything I wanted to do. And I think that is really foundational when you want to do something entrepreneurial, having the belief that it's something you can do. So I'm very cognizant that growing up, my parents telling me, hey, anything you want to do is possible was why I felt like this is something I could do right out of school. Give us a story. Well, like what crazy thing did you do as a youngster still at home that validated <laughs> that you yeah. could do this? I mean, both of my, my dad was entrepreneurial. My mom oh, worked okay. supporting helps. him in his business. So I had seen it kind of modeled firsthand. Growing up, I'd be you know, seven years old, I like to say, with a little composition book. My dad had a carpet cleaning company, and I would sit next to him in the van, and I'm like taking notes while he's on the phone as his assistant, and that evolved into me and my best friend, who's actually the COO of our company now, making these business models when we were 10 years old. Wow. Like That's lawn impressive. care companies and day spas and a line of dolls that looked like us. Like anything you can imagine, we were putting our hands in. I mean, you were born to be a business person. I definitely always enjoyed it. When you're young and you're playing house, right? Or you're playing doctor, we would play running a business. Like, it's kind of odd to think about it. It's a little different, Sam. (laughs) But that's what we liked. And I think if your work is play, then it's really easy to just wake up and do it every day. So tell us a little bit more. Being growing up in the family, uh, saw that being modeled. What else? Yeah. So I grew up in a small town in Frederick, Maryland. I guess it's not that small today, but back then it was a suburb of a suburb of D.C. and Baltimore. So picture, you know, wide open expanses, a lot of playing outside, being in nature, farmland. And I always knew that I I didn't, I loved it, but I didn't want to be there long term. 
for some reason, this like seed was planted that I belonged in California. And Something I you saw on TV, <laughs> a movie you watched, or must have been. In hindsight, I'm not really sure. I just remember like I'd have Surfer magazine and I would paste it on the walls of my bedroom and I painted my room blue. And I was like, <laughs> I'm I, in the ocean, right? <laughs> I need to get out there. And have you ever been to a Hollister store? No. So it's this like young adult clothing brand, and they would have this live camera of Huntington Beach. And you could see people surfing in Huntington Beach on the camera. And I would go to our local mall and like hang out in Hollister because it felt like I was in this Southern California vibe. <laughs> so ever, ever you since knew. then, you knew. I knew. And, and it wasn't super common where I grew up to go to the West Coast. I think one to three people in my graduating class from my high school left yeah. and went that far. I'm an East Coast guy too. What and- part? Massachusetts. Well, I kind of moved around as a kid, but two years of high school, my college, I was in Massachusetts. And um, my goal was to be warm and near the water was my goal upon graduation. My parents had already moved away. Somehow I ended up in Pittsburgh. But through work, I got to the West Coast for the first time. I was up in Seattle and I was uh, in San Francisco and I loved it. It was really awesome. And I decided that job wasn't for me and I was going to move to the West Coast. But being an East Coast guy and you want to be warm, you just go south, right? It's just you know, obvious. So I drove to San Diego. You know, why, why not? So it's the way to do it. I here mean, we are. People don't know this if they grow up on the West Coast, but you sit in your car, your windshield is encased in ice, and you have to scrape it off until you can drive somewhere. I did that enough winters, and I just came straight to San Diego. So when I was a kid, right, I had a car, riding out school in the morning in high school, because of that, like would fog up, I would ride with my head out the window, <laughs> you know, and just got out of the shower. So my hair would be frozen when I got to school. <laughs> I, know the I know the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't last long, but yeah. Great show. All right. Sounds good. Anyways, tell us more. Yeah. So I, I knew I wanted to come out this way. And I feel like a lot of my experiences growing up were kind of geared towards that. I was always probably to a fault, you know, five to 10 years ahead. I'm in middle school. What am I going to do to do well in high school? And how do I get to the right college? And how does that set me up for X, Y, Z? And I mean, it was like a joke. I I had this like office in high school that my friends would come over. (laughs) But I think growing up in the environment that I did, it was an insular community and it built these really long-term relationships where some of my best friends I've been friends with since I was five I have met a lot of people in California who maybe didn't have that opportunity. Like the schools were much bigger or they hopped around a lot or they moved a lot and building relationships and maintaining relationships long-term became so formative for everything else that I did later in life that I know like I was supposed to be in Frederick, Maryland for those formative years because it was such a, an integral part of my upbringing. It's all destiny. Mm -hmm. Big believer in that. So it all worked out. So college, you ended up coming to San Diego. How did you decide San Diego versus San Francisco? Or So I knew I wanted to be in California. That was locked in. And you said TV shows. Have you ever seen Zoe 101 or heard uh, of that? No. Look, I missed out on so many things in life here. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a kid's television show on Nickelodeon. They filmed it at Pepperdine University in Malibu. And it was just stunning. And I was like, oh, that's the school that I want to go to. That is beautiful. But beautiful I, campus. I knew I was like, I should probably look at some other schools while I'm out here. Looked at Stanford, loved it, didn't get in. Looked at all of the UC schools, didn't really find a match that, that felt right. So it ended up being between Pepperdine and University of San Diego, which is kind of like a last minute. I'll just check it out. It's convenient. I heard the campus 
looked like a Ritz Carlton. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And the going back to energy, I feel like the energy when I toured University of San Diego was electric. I was like, this is the place. I think this is where I want to go. So although I had applied to some schools on the East Coast, just as kind of like backups and keep keep mom and dad happy. Keep <laughs> options open. Maybe I'll stay close to home, you know, maybe Georgetown. I ended up USD. So tell us, how was that experience? It was just as electric, I think, as that first campus experience foretold. Like it was an incredible experience going to that school in so many different ways. I think the social life in terms of they do Greek life a little interesting where you don't rush until your second semester. So a good idea. you make a lot of friends outside of that community and then you can kind of build your circle within that community. So USD has this really integrated social life that's cool that you don't see at a lot of other schools where Greek life is a big priority. And then the academics lent really well to out-of-classroom experience. So yes, you're in school and you're learning, but how do you apply that? So they, we, we would do these things where they'd like fly you to New York and you would meet with different companies there and learn what would it, what would it be like to work at Facebook or Google, for example. So it was very hands-on Or in the applied. journey that begin, maybe kind of your third, fourth year. It's really up to you. So you can choose how much you want to engage and how much you don't. I think most students tend to take those experiences on later in school as graduation's approaching, you need a job, you start to take those things more seriously. But for me, it was similar to that aside from study abroad. My fall of my junior year, I studied abroad on semester at sea. And that's where I actually had the idea for Visor. So it became like very integral to my plan that I took that opportunity. Say, say that again. Semester at sea. Semester at sea. What, what, okay. What's that? <laughs> Everything that you're thinking. It's a cruise ship and you go to 10 countries in a hundred days. And the you idea know, like a regular is, cruise ship with the tourist cruise ship or... Tourist cruise ship, but filled with students. Wow. That'd so, be pretty fun. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> so say you have 500 students, and they're coming from 50 different colleges. Handful are international students, and then you have the professors. Like perpetual spring break, right? <laughs> you, you could do it. They have lifelong learners or professors where you could go teach a class, you bring your family. But it's a life. It's a life. When you're, when you're on the ship, you have class. So say I'm, I'm sailing from London to Italy. I have class every day of the voyage. But when you're in Italy, go explore. You mm. have five days, just be back by 5 p.m. on the last day. So this is crazy wild experience. And we did the Mediterranean and Northern Africa, Western Africa, Brazil, the Caribbean. We actually went through the Panama Canal. A lot of miles. And then it dropped us off in San Diego. Wow. I didn't know that even existed. Not too late to check it out. <laughs> There you go. Who's the, who's the old dude on the, on the cruise ship? Does he work on that thing or what? Wow. Very interesting. And so now you were in business? What, what, what were you taking? So this is kind of where the journey gets interesting. I knew I wanted to do entrepreneurship, and I went to USD and I studied business. But it wasn't until I studied abroad that I was introduced to the concept of social entrepreneurship. So I was you know, a marketing student, business administration at USD, and when you're on the ship, you have class while you're traveling, but they also had these clubs that you could join. And it, it was cool. Like everybody joined the clubs, but it was a way to find a way to entertain yourself when there's like no internet and you're mm -hmm. all kind of in this closed environment. There was a talent show. 
I like to joke I wasn't talented, so I didn't apply for that club. And then there was a social entrepreneurship club. And I knew that I had been interested in business, but I didn't really understand what social entrepreneurship was and how it was different from charity. But I was interested enough that I said, okay, let's check it out. I'll go to a session. And that first session is where I had the idea for Visor. So tell us, what is the definition? In case some folks in our audience uh, aren't that clear on that. Yeah, so how, how it was explained to me at that point in time and what I found really interesting about it was that if you work in nonprofit work or if you're fundraising for charity, you're in this cycle of always having to secure additional resources. So say you go out and you fundraise six months a year, you come back, you're trapped in that fundraising cycle between fundraising and programming. But what social entrepreneurship does uniquely is it creates a business model that generates resources sustainably and then directs those resources towards the social causes that you care about. So if you could almost unlock this like sustainable business model that underpins the impact that you want to make, you're opening up all of this time for programming versus fundraising. Later on, it was interesting as we got more into entrepreneurship and learned more about fundraising and entrepreneurship because that does have kind of a similar cadence to it. Mm -hmm. But social entrepreneurship in its lane is that. How do we use Those business? Those are for-profit and not-profit companies? So I, th I think both can fall within that category. Because I always thought it was non-profit. And that was some conversation. Like, no, no, no. It can be for-profit company as well. Yeah. So social entrepreneurship can exist in a non-profit container or in a for-profit container. But it's really the idea that you're using business to create resources for social causes. So you said you got the idea of Pfizer while you were on this trip. Yeah. So I go into the first meeting and everybody was sitting in a circle, I remember. And the advisor, he was brilliant. He like turned to the woman to his left and was like, hey, what's your idea? And it starts going around and people have these great ideas. And I start to realize, oh, I'm supposed to have an idea. I don't have an idea. <laughs> so I'm just thinking in my head. Should have signed up for the talent when I knew it. <laughs> you know, I, I should have found a talent. I was like, what could be interesting? What could be compelling? And I, I was thinking through these like different kind of trade-off models where it was like, oh, reading and exercise. Was it Is this happening in real time? Real time. Waiting for your turn to go? Yeah. I was like, reading and exercise, like that's an interesting parallel. And then I was like, well, no, it's not really, it doesn't feel quite, quite right. And then I was like, okay, well, food and exercise. There's an interesting combo there. And several years later, I kind of like unpacked why that was top of mind for me personally. Like I had been really struggling with nutrition and exercise and finding a healthy balance for myself. And I think for that reason, this came to mind for me. And right. it's personal. It was personal. And the advisor had said, and this I think was at a later time, the story kind of gets like scrambled you know, seven, eight years ago now. But at a later time, he had said, when you're picking an idea, make sure you pick something that you really identify with, you really care about. Because there are a million things that you could solve. But if you don't really care about it, when it gets hard, you're not going to stick with it. And it's guaranteed to get hard. It's good advice. It was really great advice. advice. Yeah. And I, I remembered it to this day where it was like, how aligned are you truly? Like, are you the person to bring this to fruition? Because it could be a great idea, but maybe you're not the right person for it. So in the world of kind of conscious capitalism, that's sort of where the high, higher purpose comes from, right? We, we do this thing, but there's got to be something that says there's a, there's a bigger reason. It can't be about making money because you can make money in so many different ways. There has to be something that really kind of hits you here. And I, I think that comes from the CEO, the founder, whatever. And then they invite other people into that party. Totally agree. I remember my co-founder and I, we took these builder tests 
It's like Strengths Finder, but okay. for entrepreneurs Got in it. this competition we were participating in. And it basically ranked you on like 10 different qualities and it determined how equipped you were to build something is kind of the goal of the test. And for me, impact was number one and profitability was like last. It was like my last concern. But for my co-founder, profitability was number one. Oh, there you go. Now we're talking. So it was this perfect balance of like, I was so driven by impact and community and how are we building towards our vision? Not that he's not, but it just like wasn't his number one versus profitability. I'm mindful, like a business has to generate resources to be sustainable, but it doesn't motivate my behavior. So the two of us together became a really powerful duo. And I think had one of us tried to do it on our own, it would have been missing that combo. I mean, that is the challenge. We often have this conversation on the podcast about people who've got you know partners it's a challenge to have everything you need to go run a business, right? I mean, there's so many parts and pieces. I don't know who walks around with all of that. So when you have some other folks that can offset those things that maybe aren't quite in your wheelhouse, that that's critical. But it's wonderful you guys could recognize that up front. So a question about going to school, the university. What would you say, maybe two-part question, what was the thing that helped you the most? And you already kind of maybe touched on some of those things to launch you out to go do what you do. And maybe what was lacking, like in retrospect, now and you look back over a few years ago, man, I wish I knew this in college. Maybe this is something that could be added in. So kind of what, what was the upside? What was the downside? Great question. I think the upside, and I don't think this is unique to University of San Diego. I'm sure it exists at all schools, but University of San Diego in particular has a very powerful network and that people are willing to talk to you and people are willing to help you with one email sent. I took a class, it was my senior year, called Interviewing and Negotiating. And it had this concept in it of an informational interview where you would basically reach out to somebody via email and say like, college student reaching out, spell out, hey, I would love to talk to you about these three things. Would you be open to meeting? If so, you know, I'll meet anywhere most convenient. And I used that template and I reached out to like a handful of entrepreneurs that were adjacent to our space that had, were maybe 10 years ahead of me in business. And two of them became on like advisors on my advisory board to this day that I still meet with (laughs) monthly. Right. And you crushed the interview. (laughs) That framework became the most powerful tool in our toolbox Mm. because I used that with a thousand people after that. So like leveraging the power of your network to learn, I think is probably the best thing that I got from USD in terms of negatives there. It really was like such an incredible experience. I don't know if there are negatives, but I do think had I taken some of the value of all of that earlier and understood the power of social and LinkedIn for business earlier, that would have been a benefit to like really add and connect with every single person that I met in that that time period and leverage the growth story on social media a little bit more than we did that would have been maybe just jumping into it all earlier. Yeah. Tell us about Visor, democratizing wellness. What, what does all that mean? What are, you, what are you guys doing? Democratizing wellness. Yeah, the whole goal is, so Visor is a technology company and it's building technologies to help people get healthier. So my story was I struggled with finding balance with fitness and nutrition. And I recognized that that was more of a macro problem and that you had this like mass population of people that were struggling with motivation to exercise And then you had a mass population of people that were struggling with their relationship with food or equal access to healthy food. So the original concept for Visor was if every day you worked out, you had the opportunity to donate a meal through a U.S. food bank that was paid for by brands in our network, and then you could earn healthy rewards for yourself 
then I would be motivated to work out was the core concept. We ended up building that. We launched it in January of 2019. From that, all of these like sub technologies started to evolve where we use the app for consumers. Like you could just download it off the app store, but there became this really interesting opportunity in corporate where companies would use Visor as this like internal employee wellness, employee benefits tool. And then, you know, we work with healthy brands. So there became some opportunities to build technologies for the healthy brands and supporting their initiatives and driving the trial of their product. So it became this like ecosystem that's integrated around healthy behavior. Right. There's one core concept and there's all these different ways to deliver it. Nice. Exactly. Nice. But that was a, a learning process over time. In the beginning, it was just, you know, the idea for a consumer app. The technology piece, was that fairly easy to do, like kind of off the shelf, or did you have to do a whole custom? Not easy at all. <laughs> that was probably the the biggest, um, to say, if you start something, being naive is a huge benefit because you don't know Otherwise how long Otherwise, you things, never would do it, right? You wouldn't do it, right. Things always take longer, cost more than you think. It's just the reality. And I was naive and young. And like when you combine the two of them, it's just this like almost bordering on arrogant expectation of that things should be easier than they are. I remember I walked into a development shop when I was 20 and I had my like five page slide deck of the deck I want or the app I wanted to build. And I was like, Hey, you know, how can we get this done? They were like, well, we can get it done, but it's a hundred thousand dollars. And I think I had like a hundred dollars to my name at the time. <laughs> <laughs> They're just off at zero or two. That's a no biggie. <laughs> it was such a far spread and they, they could recognize that, but they could also recognize my enthusiasm so they helped point me in the direction of building like a no-code prototype. I built that, did all the design for it. We so they surely that. came in and helped you do what you could do. Yeah. They they pointed me in the If you've read The Lean Startup, it's yes. a yes. Yeah, the concept of like, okay, how do you build something as inexpensively as possible? Quick, fast. Just to see if people will do it. And okay. what we found is if you take the like clickable prototype of your app, and you show it to the people that would be the buyer of it, the people that are using it, they're going to have a million changes that you should put in, be discerning, but a million changes that you should put in before you write a line of code. Mm. So all of 2018 really was that. Like, let's show our prototype. Let's make edits, edits, edits. So by the time we built it, it was just like one build, pushed it out. And then, you know, classic with tech, you have to pretty much tear it all down and rebuild a new version as the company scales. But... At this point, we can look back and say, hey, we, we know how to run a product team. We know how to design an interface. We know what a stack looks like. Didn't know any of that at the beginning. So it's almost like a, a master's in product. Got to go do it. Got to go find out. Yeah. So what's so is this um, kind of on a national basis you're doing this? Uh, locally, what, what does this look like? What's the market? So the app is available nationwide. Corporate programs are run nationwide. We partner with retailers that you can redeem products at nationwide. And that was almost like a, a happy accident. The goal was always to end up there. But when we launched, it was only available in San Diego. So we would partner with San Diego restaurants and studios. We had just inked partnerships with restaurant chains to open up the app in like major cities and kind of do this geographic expansion. March of 2020, all restaurants shut down, all studios shut down, kind of had to go back to the drawing board. And we said, you know what, let's open it up nationally and figure it out as we go. So you made the pivot during COVID. Give us your uh, biggest success story. My biggest success story? Somewhere where someone's been able to grab this app and change their lives. 
Yeah, I think when I think of Visor, I definitely view it as this ecosystem. It has an energy to it. And the hope is when people engage with it, whether it's somebody on the team or it's somebody that uses the app or it's a company that we're working with, they're contributing to and benefiting from that ecosystem. So when I think of success stories, like so many pop into mind because it could be something so small, like somebody reaching out with a photo that they just hit a milestone. There is one couple, they're users of the app, and they always come to mind when I think of this because when we first launched the app, I think it was probably, for, for context, we've converted like four and a half million workouts into meals. Um, we're like rounding in on that number now. But at this point, we were like 10,000 workouts converted into meals. So it was just that first year. And we reached out to our 50 top users. Said, hey, we see that you're loving the app experience. Would love to get together if you're open to meeting me for coffee and hear more about it, any feedback you have. And this couple came. I'd never met them before. We had a great conversation and we just stayed in touch throughout their milestones. And the husband would email me to let me know that his wife just hit 200 meals or at 400, we like sent flowers. So there were just these milestones. And then most recently, Dylan and I just went, I think they passed, the the wife just passed like a thousand wow. workouts turned into meals donations. So the four of us, Dylan, my co-founder and the couple went to go play pickleball. And we had a glass of wine after, and it was just so symbolic of, hey, like we- Let's go do something healthy. Let's celebrate. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we were, you know, participatory in this journey together, and it just shows, like, there is a real impact to the technology when people are using it, and it becomes a part of their daily life. What about funding? All right, so here you are coming out of college. I'm assuming you didn't have a bank bankroll, which you just expressed when you're talking about the technology side. How have you funded this whole thing? How did you make that happen? Talk about like learning how to drive while you're driving down the freeway. But I think product and fundraising kind of drive that parallel line. Sales, you can kind of figure it out as you go. But fundraising is just this, this really wild world that once you know it, you know it. And when you don't know it, you know nothing about it. And it happens in stages, right? Like mm. you may feel comfortable with, you know, friends and family are angel financing. Right. And then you move on to, to funds. And it's a totally different world. We were fortunate. We participated in a handful of business incubators, which several of them local kind of taught you the art of a pitch. Like how do you create a pitch? How do you tell your story? Mm -hmm. What's important to communicate? How do you build a model? Prior to that, we were just operating as lean as we possibly could. I remember Dylan and I would like park way down the street to not have to pay the $2 for parking and then walk to our meetings. And we were just kind of like doing these, these little, like how can we build these low cost solutions? How can we get some traction? How can we build the business up to a point spending as little as possible? And then I get an email probably a year later saying like million dollar prize for social enterprises, advancing health and wellness for populations in need in San Diego. It was and your so name on it, yeah. wildly thesis specific. And my cousin and I were living in the same house. So I was like, Dylan, did you see this email? Because I knew he was on the same list. He was like, yeah, I think it's spam. So he deletes it. I was like, no, 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 this, this is for us. Like, I think we need to apply. So we ended up applying. It was like a six month process using all of those lessons we had learned. Like, how do you make a model? How do you make a pitch deck? How do you communicate your story? Because we had done our MVP, and had a little bit of data, hey, this is really performing well. 
we think with funding, we can 10 X what we're doing. We ended up being a winner in that. You could show how you could use the money. Was mm-hmm. it was going to be off the prototype? Something's like, no, now we can expand and grow. And yeah, nice. Exactly. So we were a co-winner. They split it between us and another organization, but that was really the beginning for us. Like we hired our CTO. It's a lot of money. It was and life-changing money to anybody. But I think for us, like to, I was freelancing at night to pay my rent. So like to. So here's a little added to the story. <laughs> to have that, right? that ability to say like, okay, like we can be a little bit less stressed while we try to build this out. It really was game changing. And then we went on to do different types of funding. Like we worked with angel investors. We worked with small funds. Um, most recently we started chatting with larger funds. So you kind of progress up the funding ladder. And that's why I said it's interesting how the core motivation at the beginning was to help nonprofits get out of the cycle of fundraising. When really, if you're in like a high growth- You do the same thing. For yeah. a profit, you also find yourself in the cycle of fundraising. Kind of, kind of funny, right? <laughs> how it all works out. So you're starting to build out a team. What you, we got 14, 15 people or so? 14, yeah. What's that experience been like? Because also that takes on a whole lot more stress too. I got a payroll and, and also how do you build the team? That's It's critical. I think building a team has been one of the- Aside from like the impact the product is making, I think building a team has been one of the most enjoyable pieces of it. Also challenging, but enjoyable. I love personal development. I love relationship building. And I think that building a team is a really interesting vehicle to bring both of those passions together. Going back to like, you know, paths aligning when they should, we've been really fortunate to meet people at just the right time. Like just when the business was ready to move into another area, like someone someone shows up or like materializes. It's like, where did you come from? Or say we, we intersected too early in the journey. Two years later, that person would, would randomly email and say, Hey, you know, I'm now interested in something. If something's available, Mm -hmm. it's just the right timing. We have been really fortunate to build a team of committed, intelligent people that are way better at what they do they do than what we can do and try to give as much freedom and flexibility to them as we can. It's been a process though, like to not have worked in a corporate environment prior to starting this, to not have any management experience. And then again, it's like driving down the freeway as you're learning how to drive. How do you be a good manager and a good leader in that environment is like a constant exercise in I think reflection and seeking feedback and working with advisors to put your best foot forward. So I was going to ask the question. So how, how are you getting educated? Can't all be just uh, trial and error. I mean, do you got some outside supports? Do you belong to some follow-up education, uh, CEO roundtables? I mean, how, how are you up in your game? So I really rely on advisors. I have formal advisors in the company and then probably like a hundred people that are just relationships I've made over the years that if I have a, specific question on a specific topic like hey we're struggling with this in the company or I'm trying to solve this problem I've never done this before I don't really know the language to put around this how do I express this well like I have people that I can call for each thing and I always say like if it was not for the generosity of a thousand people that have helped us we would not be anywhere close to where we are today so that's been huge for us and then a handful of programs too. Like I, I recently was invited to this CEO peer group and it's a, 
a lot of men my dad's age, to be honest, and myself. But it's been great because they look at their businesses and they're solving problems that I haven't quite gotten to yet or aren't primarily on my radar versus when it comes to problems they may be having with their teams or remote work, engaging a workforce in this environment. Like I have things to add that aren't on their radar. So you mentioned you know, next generation, but I think intergenerational relationships and business are like 10x both sides of the equation. Yeah, for sure. So if you were speaking to um, a younger version of you, which is hard to imagine, right? <laughs> it's like so someone sitting in college thinking about uh, starting something or they're, they're out, got some thoughts. What would, what, what would you say? What's, what's the sage advice you got, Sam? I always say go for it. There is so much that gets, so many ideas get killed in like our internal narrative before they even have a chance to materialize into something else. And I don't remember who said it, but I know like Prince would say if he, if he got a song or Michael Jackson, one of them would say if they got a song, they had to record it that night before the other person would because the idea would just move on. Like it would find a new host. And I think that's that's really relevant where if you feel like a passion to do something, there is a purpose for that and it's a calling and you should act on it. Even if to find out like, oh, that wasn't the path. But you'll you'll move forward in some area and you'll learn really valuable lessons. So try in some capacity before you dismiss the idea to yourself in your own like container. That is sage advice. It's kind of funny. I, I got something I'm supposed to be doing tomorrow and I have this whole thought about how I want to do it. And a week ago, I was like very fired up. We'll see. It's so obvious that this is the way to go. And it's been interesting. My little internal voice of going, well, you don't really have to do it that way. And maybe that's going to be a little too bold. And I'm back in the game though. I was like, we're going to do it. There you <laughs> go. We were in circle back, but I think we described is critical because we really do. We're kind of fear-based, right? I mean, we're fear-based animals. So we really do tend to kind of talk ourselves out of things. And often, too, if you start to put it out to the world, a lot of other fear-based animals out here, they'll start to tell you, oh, that's, that's a little scary. What do you think? And sometimes keeping it to yourself is important as well. And recognizing that, like, if somebody, we learn this, I think, over time, but if somebody that you care about and you know cares about you is telling you something is a bad idea or they don't see it working or not to do it, often they're just afraid for you. Like, they don't want to see it go south. They don't want to see you make a wrong move. They don't want to see. So learning to kind of contextualize, okay, this person may be saying that they have these, these concerns or these doubts, but are those my own? Like, do I agree with that? If I don't, then maybe they just need me to show them that it's not as risky or as scary as they think it is. Right. They're, they're worried about you. They're taking your best interests mm -hmm. from that perspective, but yeah, not easy. What's the big idea here? So a few, uh, we've been sitting here talking about a lot of things. You're doing a lot of things, having lots of success over here. What's the big idea? What would you want people to remember out of this conversation? I think that it's a great question. I think that Visor and the way that we run our company have all built around this central idea of how do you exist at, as an integrator and how do you create these symbiotic relationships? In the instance of Visor, you have all of these parties that are contributing a little bit, and that's making it possible for a lot to happen. And you have in life or on teams or in families, even friend groups, you have like all of these different assets that exist. And very rarely are they integrated in a way that they can be shared by the whole. And when we look at democratizing wellness as a concept, that's what it is. Like you have all of these well-resourced 
entities that just aren't working together in any kind of integrated symbiotic fashion. And if you can create that, then you can unlock the power of that for the whole. So I would encourage people to look at areas where they're passionate about or their friend groups, their families, XYZ, whatever environment they're in, and say, is there an opportunity here for me to create this integration point where I'm aligning people towards a common goal? And if I can do that, then I can probably unlock a lot of unrealized power within my entity. What are you excited about relative to the future? What do you see happening in the next three, five years? For me personally, for Visor, for the world. A, B, and C. A, B, and C. I have learned that it's much easier to connect the dots looking backwards. So I can look back and see how everything had to happen to get me to where I am today. And I've also realized that like my idea of what's going to happen in the future is often less expansive than what actually happens. So I've tried to stop defining what I think the future is going to look like and start leaning more into like, I want the future to be as abundant as it can be. And I'm going to show up every day as presently as I can and continue to try and continue to put my best effort into it. And it's going to build something bigger than what I can imagine. The hope is that obviously we've set this vision of democratizing wellness and we're continuing to do that. But how that's going to look in five years, we could be doing it you know, way different than I presently think. So just being responsive to our environment and trying to give our all every day. Oh, wow. I love that. How old are you? 80, 90 years old? <laughs> you got a lot of wisdom, girl. Close. I, I went on a three-month sabbatical, and at the very end of the sabbatical, and I go, oh, I got this thing now. And I kind of went back to where the whole thing started, and my big takeaway that day, I got this like message from above that said, now hold it loosely, which is kind of along the lines of what you were saying. So I, I write that down every day. I'm, I put my plan down. Just hold it loosely because if I start to put constraints on it, well. I love that. And I had a similar experience that like led to that belief where I wrote this manifestation letter. And it was like my life. Like I had described, this is what my life is going to look like. And I made this vision board of it. I think it was 25. And I had a dream. I have lucid dreams a lot. And in the dream, it was like clear as day. This, this like man is sitting there. He's like, forget the letter. It's not serving you. <laughs> I woke up and I was like, okay, I guess I don't need the letter. <laughs> I don't need this anymore. Out. <laughs> yeah. I just started reading a really interesting book that says uh, 10X is easier than 2X. It's really the idea of the 80-20 rule. So, you know, 20% gives us, you know, 80% of the outcome. And so traditionally what we do is like, oh, focus in on that 20%, do a little bit more. Well, that's 2X. 10X is actually eliminating the luggage. I mean, drastically getting rid of like everything that's not serving you. And that also includes like, oh, like this right now is like my main revenue stream. But if I'm going to really dive in and focus on the 20%, that has to go. So it's not easy. It's uh, kind of scary to do it, but... Uh, anyways, cool concept. I'm I'm deep into that right now. Totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah. If you're too close to today's problems, then you're stuck in today. Yeah. Well, Sam, believe it or not, that's kind of the end of the show here. So we got to move on. But I want to thank you for taking the time to come in and uh, share your amazing experience and all these insights and wisdom. You truly do have a lot of wisdom. So I love, love talking to you and appreciate really what you're doing here. I mean, you're really trying to make a big difference in the world and having an impact, not just here in San Diego, but around the world. So Keep up the great work. That's thank our show you. for today. <laughs> well, thank you. That's our show for today. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe and comment. And most importantly, share the podcast with a friend. 
Again, special thanks to our collaborative community of San Diego business organizations, the Better Business Bureau, Conscious Capitalism, Be Loco, and Cause San Diego, who are all using the influence of business to positively impact our very own community of San Diego. I'm Jeff Lanton from Jailbreak Leadership saying, until next time, go do what you do. Go do what you do best, where we're all counting on you.